0: Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host as always, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you?
1: I am positively splendid, Gary. How are you?
0: I'm very good, thank you.
1: Fantastic. Um, Anything going on in your life?
0: Nothing in particular going on in my life now. I'm still on uh, my pediatrics placement in Cork now at the moment, so um, that's going well. And my new little puppy is settling in quite well he's getting me he's getting my steps up which is fantastic because normally I don't really do that many steps I just if I have time I just get my training in so that's the priority but uh, now I have to get out for a walk each day so serving me well
1: you need to get him a little puppy treadmill for the rainy days
0: yeah that's the plan all right he, he can't his feet won't reach the pedals on the bike erg so it's a bit of a problem
1: Anyway, look here, we're here to talk about something related to this training conversation. Um, and what is that, Gary?
0: Yeah, so we're going to talk, we're going to continue the supplement series. Um, we're It's early days, but we're we've talked in the last episode about general health supplements. So the supplements that might cover, you know, people who are generally health conscious, let's say. But now what we want to do is focus a little bit more on those of you who are training, who are in the gym and who want to, get an edge through supplementation. So the assumption always with supplementation is that, you know, you've got your basics taken care of. So you have a good training plan that you're trying to follow. You've got uh, your nutrition in order, you're sleeping enough, etc. You're doing all those things. Supplementation can in fact, you know, give you a bit of an edge. So that's what we want to talk about in this podcast. We'll focus on a few of the common Uh, supplements that people will take maybe some that are slightly less common and how they might fit into different goals. Obviously when we're talking about multiple different compounds we're not going to be going into great depth on every single ingredient but you should leave this episode with a good idea as to where these different ingredients in supplements um, can fit in with your training goals.
1: Yeah and the thing about it is look we very clearly understand that when we say training or exercise that's not the same thing across the board you know like if you're going out for a i don't know a run you know that's obviously different the requirements for that are different the goals of that the adaptations etc are all different than if you're going in and looking to try hit a new 3rm in the squat you know so we can't give you perfect recommendations without actually knowing the goal right and supplementation will differ and depend on the exact goal what we're trying to achieve with this workout and with the program and your overall lifestyle etc overall um like you could be looking for strength gain right that could be the goal but it could also be the expression of strength in that training session you know like we talk about it oftentimes in terms of testing versus training like some sessions you're going to be training you're going to be training to get better to adapt some sessions you might be going in there testing you know you might be like today i'm actually just going to try hit a new rep max or today i'm going to try hit you know heavier weights than i've ever done on this exercise whatever like there's multiple things but there are differences in terms of whether you're training versus whether you're testing and as a result supplementation for those two things are going to be different for example if you're just training you know you're just trying to build strength adaptations You're not going to go in there on fucking a gram of uh, caffeine. You're not going to go in super hyped up to like, you know, oh, I'm going to sniff smelling salts, everything. Like, it's just a training session. You're going to be like two to three reps uh, in reserve, you know, whereas if you're going in, you're like, I'm hitting a new one rep max. This is the heaviest weight I've ever lifted. It's going to crush me if I'm not hyped up the fuck and ready for this. Obviously, the supplementation demands or supplementation tactics, I should say, um, are going to be different in those two things. So we have to be very clear on our goals, right? Same with an endurance side of things. Like, are we trying to improve our endurance with this training session or are we trying to express that endurance, the endurance capacity that we have? Like, are we trying to go out and hit a new five kilometer speed time or are we trying to go out and go, okay, I'm going to be running at a specific pace, for a specific determined amount of time, etc. You know, again, our supplementation is going to differ based on those two things. You know, same with skill acquisition: is this a skill acquisition session versus maybe a strength gain session, uh, an endurance session, or whatever? Or are we actually just trying to express the skill that we already have? Again, you're maybe not going to go in on a fucking gram of caffeine if you're just going into learn how to do a few movements this is the first time you've ever been exposed to these movements you know maybe you're trying to learn how to i don't know do an olympic uh, snatch you know a weightlifting exercise movement whatever you want to call it and you're like this is the first session i've ever done i'm maybe gonna do the bar i might even only be using something like a broomstick (laughs) like obviously you don't need to be hyper caffeinated hyper stimulated for that session you know Um, and then same again if the goal is muscle gain our supplementation tactics are going to be different. You know, like muscle gain is more of a byproduct of the training that we do, but we can still bias those adaptations, you know? And again, then we would supplement accordingly, right? So that's a long-winded way of saying that supplementation is goal-dependent. It really just depends on what you're trying to achieve. And the generic advice that we're giving now is just that, generic It's not specific for your individual goals. And I know the vast majority of people are going to the gym to improve their body composition. Like realistically, that is probably the vast majority of people, right? So we're looking at two things really there. We're looking at some sort of muscle gain aspect, and then maybe some sort of strength acquisition aspect, right? So with that in mind, that kind of biases the recommendations that we're giving, we're generally talking about people that are trying to improve their body composition doing some kind of bodybuilding esque training now we obviously have a bias towards resistance training and we also have a bias towards ensuring you get some cardiovascular training in your working week as well or your training week i should say um but even at that primarily we're here talking about people that are looking to change their body composition improve muscle mass improve strength That's kind of the starting point. Would you agree with that, Gary? Absolutely. Yeah. So with that in mind, when we're talking about supplements, like Gary said earlier on, we're kind of assuming that you have your baseline nutrition sorted. You have a good training program, like supplementing, you know, whatever with a new pre-workout or whatever. It means fucking diddly squat if your training program is shit you know, or you're not sleeping enough or you're stressed to the fucking gills, you know, or your diet is just atrocious. Like you're just wasting money at that stage. Right. So all of those things are foundational. Supplementation is just that it's to supplement all the other stuff that you've already got nailed or pretty much nailed. Right. Um, <clears throat> so with that said, there are some supplements that we can use in the we'll call it the peri workout or the around workout workout. Uh, time period you know window if you will that may potentially help with the goals of of improving body composition improving strength improving muscle gain so what are they right well first of all let's break it down into a few different categories first of all we have the pre-workout period so there's specific goals for the pre-workout period then we have the intra-workout period which is during the workout and then we have the post-workout period now supplementation for all three of those it's for different goals, you know, like in the post-workout period, you're probably not looking to get amped up. You're probably not looking to be like, yeah, man, I need to go and get highly motivated. I need to be whatever, right? You've done your workout. Now's the time to kind of wind down a little bit, refuel, recharge, right? So the goals are different. That much should be obvious, right? However, what are the goals of those different periods? Well, we'll start with the pre-workout period and maybe we'll go through the supplements then after that because it probably makes sense to to discuss it that way so pre-workout what are the goals right well we want to provide energy and i mean energy in terms of both actual energy substrates right so food if you will so again we're presuming you have your nutrition dialed in but then also this kind of feeling of energy or feeling energized so that's generally going to fall into the like stimulant type category right so you want to have something stimulating neurologically stimulating if you will during that workout that pre-workout period right so energy that's about a food or nutrition component and then also the stimulation component now motivation as well pre-workout you kind of want it to motivate you you kind of want it to be something that increases your drive your motivation right again we'll talk about how that could potentially play out in terms of a pre-workout in a second. You want something that ideally, especially if we're talking about strength, increases this kind of, we'll call it neural drive, the ability for your nervous system to communicate, we'll say, effectively with your muscles and coordinate movement, right? And again, certain compounds, they might tick multiple boxes here, right? Hydration, we know that dehydration is... uh uh a cause of poor performance so obviously we want to be hydrated going into a workout and again a lot of that is driven by just water intake general water intake and um, so you know you shake up a pre workout shake some of that's water and that's helping with hydration you know which is a little bit strange because you often see people doing like oh I dry screw dry scoop my pre-workout and it it just doesn't really make sense a lot of these compounds that are in it they need water to effectively be activated but also some of them are just hydrating compounds like if you're dry scooping something that is like oh it's a load of citrulline malate it's meant to help with the pump but you're dehydrated you're not hydrated enough it's fucking useless (laughs) right so it makes sense well dry scooping doesn't really make sense right um but anyway, hydration, that's one of the goals. And then improve blood flow. Now, those goals, a lot of them, they overlap, right? Some of them are different. Some of them are also antagonistic. Like if you take take things that are very stimulating, generally they have a vasoconstrictive effect. Like if you take, you know, a load of stimulants, caffeine, amphetamines, whatever, you know, like you're getting a vasoconstricting effect, which may go against the actual goal of the workout. Like if you're going in and you're going, I want to have a really good pump workout. I want to get a really good pump. That's the goal of this session. Taking a loads of caffeine beforehand, which is a stimulant, probably not going to be great for that. This is oftentimes, you'll see this a lot reported in men. They'll be like, I take my pre-workout, and I'm really stressed out and my penis feels like it's shriveled up. It's like half the size that it normally is. And you're like, yeah, of course, it's vasoconstricted. There's vasculature in your in your penis. Of course, it's going to constrict. You've take on a lot of stimulants makes sense right and so anyway there are the goals we can move into the compounds but Gary do you have anything to say on any of that in terms of the goals of a pre-workout or the goals of supplementation we should say in the pre-workout
0: period yeah so just one thing would be that um, there's sometimes a difference between as you said how we want to feel prior to a training session and how we want to feel prior to performance And if you're constantly seeking, you know, maximal readiness prior to every training session, then that might actually lead to some counterproductive effects. This is very, very often seen when people rely on very high doses of caffeine in order to get their training done or very high dose pre-workouts. Once they're without that, then they're in a position where they almost expect their training to go poorly. And also they basically dampen the effects of that in each training session as a result of using it so regularly, you're then not going to be able to get the benefits when you need it for performance as well. So that's just one of the themes that does permeate a lot of discussions related to supplementation. And it even goes deeper into the levels of adaptation in some cases as well, where, you know, you can take certain supplements that might blur might blunt, Um, certain physiological processes, you know, we'll talk about some of them in terms of acid-base balance. You can also talk about antioxidants and things like that, that they might hypothetically be of use from a recovery perspective in some cases, but they actually might compromise adaptation because you want your body to adapt to the stressors. So that's just a kind of a general overarching philosophical point that we will refer back to as we refer to each compound as we go through.
1: Yeah, and just further to that, you'll also see like if you like, using the caffeine example, people be like, "Oh, like I have to take so much caffeine for my training sessions." Like you're effectively digging a bigger recovery hole or recovery debt. So your supplementation then influences your uh, training program. For example, again, you're the individual that has to go in and absolutely kill themselves. You're on like three or four scoops of pre-workout before a training session, and you're on like. Like diabolical levels of caffeine, you know? And it's like, okay, you're hyper stimulated for that training session, but it now takes you so much to recover from that training session that you now have to change your training program. Like, you can't just train multiple times per week. You have to only, you can only train two, three times a week because you're so stimmed out. And the only way you could train more times per week is if you take more stimulants to get yourself hyped up for the gym to be able to express your strength which you plateau very quickly at that because you're just expressing strength and you're just digging a deeper and deeper recovery debt you're never actually adapting you know so again we have to be smart with this stuff we can't just be like oh yeah like the goal is energy motivation drive these compounds are great for it like they have knock on consequences as well like if you're taking again a simple one most people would understand you're taking massive amounts of caffeine and it's your training is at late at night. It's going to impact your sleep. And then all of a sudden, you're not getting enough sleep to recover, to be able to train, to get the adaptations that you want. So you've prioritized those momentary feelings of, yeah, I'm hyped up for my workout over the actual results of that training program. You know, so again, we just have to be smart. Um, so, yeah, anything else to add to the goals of a pre-workout? Nope, let's move on. Fantastic. So let's just go with, we'll call it a motivation and drive. We'll start with choline, Gary. Why would we want to potentially supplement with choline in a pre-workout context?
0: Yeah. So this is probably a little bit left field for some people. and, And we should say that we're not listing these in terms of a hierarchy or anything. We're just going through them one by one. And when it comes to, to choline, why this would be relevant is in relation to neurotransmission. So neurotransmission is the process by which nerve cells communicate with each other. So if we take a step back, anytime we're doing exercise, we obviously rely heavily on the nervous system, both in terms of higher order, higher order processes, in terms of, let's say, coordination of movement, um, motor planning, etc. But on the fairly simple and easy to understand level, just basic muscle contraction. You need strong nervous connections that are repeatedly ongoing in order to make your muscles contract strongly and to do that over and over again. Okay. And at these um, junctions between nerve cells, you have and between nerve cells and muscles, I should say, we have what are referred to as synapses. And at these synapses, which are the gaps between those cells, we have neurotransmitters that cross that gap and enable signal processing to take place. Now, one of the important neurotransmitters here when it comes to muscle contraction is acetylcholine. So acetylcholine, it's a neurotransmitter, it's involved in muscle contraction and many other nervous system processes. And the idea here would be that if we can provide more substrate in order to increase neurotransmitter synthesis, that this might allow us Uh, greater muscle force output, greater muscle power output, um, and maybe even enhance things like, you know, coordination and things like that. So that's the idea here with choline supplementation um, or acetylcholine supplementation. So the choline itself, you do get choline from your diet. Um, So especially if you're on an animal-based diet or a diet that's inclusive of animal-based foods, you will get choline in your diet. But supplementation may be of use for you know, cases where you have depletion of neurotransmitters. So for example, you're doing a hard exercise session, your neurotransmitters, acetylcholine in this case, might become uh, depleted. How might we ensure that we get more and more acetylcholinergic neurotransmission? And there's two potential ways you can do that. Number one, you can directly provide an acetylcholine source. So that would be a supplement like alpha-GPC, for example. There are other types of similar supplements, but the idea there is that you're providing more substrate. And the other way to do that would be to provide an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So acetylcholinesterase is basically the enzyme that would break down acetylcholine within that synapse. So if you think about the acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter crossing and binding onto its receptor, if you can make that occur for longer, that's the same as having more acetylcholine. So if you inhibit the enzyme that would break down that acetylcholine, you're having a similar effect. So you can inhibit the enzyme that would break it down or you can provide more of the substrate in the first place, and there are the two kind of supplement categories here. So you've got acetylcholine, which is alpha GPC, is probably the best source, and then the second option is an esterase inhibitor, um, which is huperzine A, is probably one of the more popular ones. There are other supplements that have this type of activity, but huperzine A is one that um, is used relatively frequently. So there are two supplements that fit into that category. Do they have massive amounts of evidence to support performance enhancing benefits? Not really, but there is some. Okay. There's enough there that if you were go on. You're going, you're right? gonna
1: see. Like this yeah. is gonna be the case with most supplements. It's yeah. not like these are gonna be game changers. No, we're talking no. about you've got all the big blocks in play: nutrition, diet, sleep, stress management, training, etc. Right. They're the big blocks. We're talking about percentages or percentages of percentages here. Mm-hmm. Like even with you know, some of the bigger hitters, like we'll talk about creatine and caffeine and stuff like that. Still only minor benefits, but in a sporting context, in a performance context, minor benefits add up. Like you talk about a 1% difference and it's at the Olympics, like that's the difference between like first and last place. So, and it does add, a lot of the stuff is cumulative. Now it's not completely cumulative, but it does add up. Um, but I just wanted to also say on choline, there are other things you'll often see put in supplements, different sources of choline, different acety- acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. There are other compounds, pharmacological compounds that kind of fall into these co- this context as well. Even stuff that you might not necessarily associate, such as nicotine, falls into this it's nicotinic acetylcholine uh, is the, the receptor. So you can smoke a cigarette or take a nicotine gum or lozenge or whatever and get some more of this this is also why you see like skill acquisition and verbal fluency and different things like that are potentially uh, improved with nicotine they're working through the same pathway here um so that is something that's important to understand that we're not covering absolutely everything these are the ones that we kind of think are more beneficial uh, or at least have more evidence and have more anecdotal data as well to support them and while we can get into the dose of these different compounds and i'm i will potentially mention a few different doses like most of this stuff i would just recommend going to examine.com and they will have these supplements not all the supplements um but they'll have all these different compounds and different supplements you can look it up and be like what's an efficacious dose what's an effective dose based on your body weight, et cetera, right? And that's important for two things. First of all, you want to obviously take an effective dose. You want to know what the effective dose is. You don't want to take too much. You don't want to take too little. But then you can also compare it to whatever supplement you're being sold, right? Or whatever supplement's being marketed to you. Because very often with supplements, especially pre-workouts, they'll have a laundry list of compounds on on the label. And you're like, fuck, this is 20 different things. But then you actually look at the dose of it, And then you compare it to something like, again, examine.com. It'll have the dose there. And you go, this is like half a percent of the effective dose. It's not even 1% of the effective dose. They just literally included it so they could include it on the label. Right. And you see this very often with stuff like alpha GPC. Alpha GPC is a little bit more expensive. Um, So people are like, oh, well, I'll just say I have alpha alpha GPC. Now, an effective dose is somewhere in and around 600 milligrams. But you'll see it on the label of a supplement and it'll be like, 50 milligrams you know and while that might do something you know it might very very minor thing like it's not at the effective dose to actually notice the benefits to make it worthwhile taking that right so i just wanted to put that in there but it holds true for all of the other supplements <laughs> that we're going to talk about
0: absolutely so um i'm not i don't have too much else to say on the actual choline sources themselves There's supplement category that you know, I would consider it to be, you know, speculative, probably lower on the hierarchy in terms of things that you'd want to be considering here. But, um, you know, I've used Hooper A myself and Alpha GPC. Anecdotally, maybe some effect, probably more so from a nootropic perspective than performance for me. I don't think I've been able to decipher whether or not there's an effect there. Um, but, you know, do, do they work? They, they probably do to some extent.
1: Yeah. And this is also, again, like you're going to have people that have different genetics, different polymorphisms, different things. Yeah. Like, for example, I myself have a pseudocholine esterase deficiency. So me taking huberzine A, I actually feel like shit. I'm like, it doesn't work for me because I already have effectively, it's not exactly the same, but effectively the exact same thing going on in terms of what huberzine A and what my genetic polymorphisms do. They kind of overlap. Right. But I also noticed that I get more of an effect from acetylcholine substrates, you know, or compounds you know so i'm like oh alpha gpc works really well for me and this is again a commonality between all supplements and nutrition and training there are individual effects right what you might see in the data the the data the research whatever be like yeah like there are responders non-responders or there's a huge magnitude of effect or a low magnitude of effect right it you kind of have to test it out in yourself you know you kind of have to see oh is this something that works for me and that goes back to my earlier point. You don't just t- test something out and go, oh yeah, I got this completely ineffective uh, dose of it and oh, it didn't work for me. So I'm obviously a non-responder to that supplement or that compound. When in reality, maybe you're actually a normal responder or even a hyper responder, but you just took such a low dose that it just made no difference whatsoever. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> but anyway, choline, that's one of the things, acetylcholine or, or course I should say, and or, uh an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor fantastic we've got that ticked off right catecholamines right now there's a few in this we don't necessarily need to go through the whole like catecholamine synthesis or sorry biosynthesis and degradation pathways and everything but we'll just say dopamine is in this and we'll call it norepinephrine epinephrine the adrenaline type things right they're in this right so there are compounds in the body that are transformed we'll say into those different catecholamines dopamine noradrenaline etc right Um, and we can take compounds that stimulate the production of those things right like dopamine you can take compounds that stimulate the production of dopamine you can take compounds that you know stop just like the acetylcholine esterase inhibitor you can take compounds that stop the reuptake of dopamine the breakdown of dopamine etc most of those things are pharmacological drugs, you know, taking amphetamines, you know, you're taking a uh, like Ritalin, different things like that, right? So we're obviously not going to recommend those things pre-workout, talk to your doctor if that's something that you want to do, you'll very often see, uh, you know, athletes get busted for this stuff. They're like, oh, well, why were you on a, why do you all have ADHD? Oh, it's very interesting that these compounds also have a performance increasing or enhancing effect. But anyway, we digress. Um, However, from a supplement standpoint, while we can't necessarily influence too many of those pathways, there are certain drugs or certain compounds that we can use that influence those pathways. Um, What we can do is provide the substrates for those pathways, right? So those pathways at least have the raw material to build the different things down the line. Right. And we can do this, especially we'll just talk about dopamine, although it does account for all those adrenaline ones. I hate the way it's like there's an American and then there's a European or English version of these, whatever you want to call them, compounds in the body. Uh, It just makes it look like there's four different things going on when really there's only two. But anyway, I digress. So what we can do is we can supplement with stuff like phenylalanine, which you'll often see on stuff like, you know, a bottle of Coke right? Um, We can supplement with some phenylalanine. It's just a protein, or sorry, I should should say it's an amino acid. There are people out there that have phenylketonuria, so ideally you would not supplement (laughs) with phenylalanine in, in that case. But all that's doing is that phenylalanine is used in the biosynthesis of stuff like dopamine, right? But there is another compound intermediate to that, which is called tyrosine, right? Now, we can use phenylalanine to influence tyrosine levels, and tyrosine will then influence dopamine levels and noradrenaline nor, sorry, norepinephrine epinephrine levels down the line, right? However, there is a rate limiting step, and that is the tyrosine hydroxylase, I believe. Um, so supplementing with excessive amounts of tyrosine isn't going to do all that much in terms of dopamine synthesis otherwise you could just give people with parkinsons a lot of tyrosine that yeah. would be fantastic because parkinsons is signified by low dopamine transmission right um <clears throat> so you might be wondering well why why would we use tyrosine then right well it's really only the the only compound that we have available to us that we can use to influence dopamine and the adrenalines, we'll say, right? The other catecholamines, right? And those things are responsible for making you feel energetic, motivated. They also have like a neural drive component to it, right? So there's a lot of stuff that they're beneficial for, right? So you'll often see these included in pre-workouts. I'm actually not too much of a fan of either of those, especially in high doses, but I actually like them in lower doses, you know? You can there are also, and I should say, because you'll Google it and you'll find it, there are also other ones that you can use for just pure dopamine, such as Makuna pur- purines. Um, you can use those. They have L Dopa in them, which is L Dopa is actually the drug that they give to people with Parkinson's, right? So you can you can bypass all that stuff, but whenever you start messing with neurotransmitters, you know, you run a lot of risks, right? So I am a fan of tyrosine or phenylalanine as, oh, we're just going to make sure there's a small amount of substrate here just in case, you know, does that mean that it's going to be our main vector? Probably not. What we probably will do is we'll use other compounds to increase the likelihood of like dopamine transmission or dopamine expression or dopamine synthesis, such as caffeine. Caffeine increases dopamine levels. It also increases dopamine receptors, right? So there's a lot of different things that are feeding in. Again, I told you, these pathways are all convergent and they overlap and whatever else, right? Um, but tyrosine can be effective. It seems to be quite effective taking pre-workout for a lot of different things. It seems to blunt the kind of excessive stress that can come from uh, training, which is you know potentially good. But is it one of those ones that I'd be like, oh, everyone, you need to go out and take two grams of uh, tyrosine? Probably not. If it's in a pre-workout that you take and it's in a dose of at least 500 milligrams, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. But there are some off-target effects. There's even effects in like serotonin and different things. So it's not something that I would just be like, oh, I'm just gonna take five grams of this stuff, (laughs) you know? Um, But anyway, do you have any thoughts on any of that, Gary?
0: Yeah, so I suppose just, just in summary there, like when you're looking at this catecholamine pathway, you've effectively got multiple steps from phenylalanine to tyrosine to L-DOPA to dopamine and then to norepinephrine or noradrenaline and epinephrine or adrenaline. So anything that's going to potentially increase uh, one step along the way can also impact the step beyond that. But as Paddy said, tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the enzyme that converts tyrosine to L-DOPA, is often the rate limiting step. So that's why, as he said, Parkinson's patients won't just get tyrosine. Okay. So effectively what that means is if you've got a state where your dopamine synthesis has already been ramped up, it's already doing its job. You know, you've, you've got enough going on. That enzyme will just be shut down. So you take loads of tyrosine. What happens? You metabolize it and you pee it out. That's it. Okay. No, not much else is going to happen. So where this is probably of most use. And again, the evidence is like really limited in exercise settings. Um, but where where it would be of most use would be, I think, in maybe like a state of competition. So for example, I think a good a good one here would be something like the day of a jiu-jitsu competition where like you're stimulated, you're stressed, there's a lot going on. You've got like you're on and off the mats or playing any 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 type of sport really where there's just a lot of stress involved. That might help both on the physical and the psychological or cognitive side of things there, uh, because you're basically providing more substrate in a case where you might be depleting more neurotransmitters, okay? Otherwise, extreme environment training would be another one. For example, if you're doing a run in the extreme cold or you're going on a prolonged hike, those types of things. I think these are cases where something like uh, tyrosine might be of more use, for the everyday trainee, it's going to be very, very difficult to tell if there's any significant difference there. And um, there probably will be some, you know, variance between in- individuals here because people vary in terms of their propensity for dopaminergic uh, signaling, and that might vary depending on you know medications you're on. It might vary depending on um, your your mood state, for example. You see variations in dopaminergic neurotransmission in different mental health conditions and things like that so um there's not going to be like a catch-all recommendation that this is going to be useful for everyone but i think if it is going to benefit anyone it would be those people who are doing you know things that are very physically and psychologically stressful um maybe with environmental stressors uh, along the way as well so i think that's probably where it's most likely to be of use but do be aware as well that with any of these neurotransmitter um, substrates or neurotransmitter moderators, like if you're on medication or you have an underlying disease state, like you don't really want to be messing around with these things too much. So do take care.
1: 100%, which also brings us to the next category, which is stimulants. This is the this is the one that everyone thinks of when they think of pre-workouts. They think I'm going to get stimmed out of my fucking mind. I'm going to get hyped up. I'm going to get motivated energetic fantastic right but you also see people not realize that the research actually supports <laughs> relatively high doses of you know stuff like caffeine you know people were like oh I had like a coffee before my workout and it has like maybe 90 milligrams of caffeine in it and it's like yeah like that'll definitely work to some extent but the research suggests maybe 200 to 400 milligrams is actually a sweet spot you know <laughs> however, a lot of people are also sensitive to different stimulants, you know, so we have quite a lot of diverging and converging opinions here in terms of people who are like, I need to be taking a nearly a gram of caffeine and whatever other stimulants we can get in here. Like I know there's loads of stimulants that, you know, are either illegal or quasi legal or used to be legal but someone actually has a stash of the supplements that used to have it in it and they're 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 banned now like there's so many different stimulants out there we're not going to cover them all caffeine is probably the most frequently used one it's the most frequently used one by everyday people like gary you probably have fucking coffee in front of you right now you know like zero which has caffeine has and caffeine it also has uh phenylalanine, phenylalanine yeah. <laughs> um you know what i mean so it's like most people are using caffeine the effective dose for caffeine as a stimulant pre-workout somewhere in the range of 100 to 400 milligrams probably more efficacious in the 200 to 400 milligram range i think like a can of something like monster an energy drink i think it only has like 100 110 or
0: 50 yeah how much 150
1: Yeah, so if you have like a can of Monster and you've had like a coffee earlier in the day, you're probably at the low end of that efficacious dose in terms of 200 milligrams. Some, you know, pre-workouts, like supplements, they have like 350 milligrams of caffeine in them, which is a fucking fair whack for a lot of people. But if you double scoop that, which a lot of people do, you're on like 700 milligrams, which is a very, very efficacious dose (laughs) of uh, caffeine. But it's also probably going to take some recovery to get you back to baseline you know and this is the thing if you're using caffeine or you're using stimulants in general you really can only confine them to the earlier part of the day you know like caffeine takes like what is it six to 12 hours as a half-life you know somewhere in that range so let's just say nine hours nine hours later if you've taken 700 milligrams of caffeine double scoop this you know banger of a fucking pre-workout and you double scoop it you're at 700 milligrams, like nine hours later, you're still at like 350, <laughs> you know? So, like, you're still at 350 milligrams of caffeine when you're trying to go to sleep. Probably not going to go to sleep, you know? Nine hours later, you're still only at half, you know? Like, that could easily keep you up all night, right? Now, if you're excessively tired, like certain people, like the person that I'm talking to, um, you know, maybe you can still go to sleep with that. But if you're a well-rested person and you do that, you're probably not going to get good quality sleep, which is kind of paradoxical. If you're doing everything right and then you take a high dose of caffeine, it makes everything worse. Whereas if you're doing everything wrong and you take a high dose of caffeine, it kind of just doesn't matter because (laughs) your sleep is already shit and you're so overtired that you can still get to sleep, you know? So that's, again, a little bit of a paradoxical thing. But anyway, caffeine, really good for uh, training. There's a reason it's in pretty much every pre-workout, but we're probably going to confine it only to the earlier part of the day, which is maybe only about 30% of the people out there work or, or sorry, only 30% of the people out there train in the earlier part of the day. Like you were saying your caffeine cutoff is like, let's just say one o'clock in the day. Like most people are not training in the morning. Most people are not training in the afternoon. The vast majority of people are training in the evening. So for those people, caffeine and most other stimulants if not all other stimulants they're kind of out you know um which is not how the average gym goer sees it (laughs) Mm -hmm. the average gym goer sees oh i'm training at six or seven o'clock cool pre-workout 30 40 minutes beforehand right which also brings me to the next point which is for caffeine to be really effective you probably want it in your system or start taking it into your system 60 to 90 minutes before your workout you know depending on exactly how you metabolize it depending on exactly what kind of workout you're doing etc right and again as i said earlier on these stimulants very often are vasoconstricting so if you're going in and doing a pump style workout or you're trying to get a lot of blood flow to an area stimming out on a load of caffeine is probably not ideal you know where it would be ideal is if you're doing a more neurologically demanding workout in terms of You're really trying to progress the weights that you're using. You're maybe doing lower rep ranges. For that kind of stuff, caffeine can be fantastic. It can also be fantastic for endurance-style workouts, leading you to actually produce more force for every step you take, for example. And as a result, you actually get more work done for a given unit of time. However, if we're doing stuff like heart rate-based training, we have to take that into consideration because with caffeine in the system, you might notice that your heart rate, if you're you know, doing a run or something, that your heart rate is maybe 10 to 15 beats higher for a given unit of effort. Now, that does seem to reduce, especially in habitual caffeine use. But if you're going in, you're like, oh, I usually do a certain run and I usually try to keep my heart rate at 140 to 150 for this type of run. And then you whack in a stimulant, and you're like fuck I was up at 170 like that was just for that workout it's going to probably adapt over time but it is something to pay attention to because for everyone or I should say not everyone adapts the same amount over time like some people they just will consistently even if they take boatloads of caffeine consistently notice that it increases their heart rate 10 beats per minute for a given unit of effort so again we have to put that stuff into context and then just to kind of round out the caffeine conversation and let you jump in then gary like there are other compounds that we can take with caffeine that actually kind of smooth out the the effects of caffeine in terms of they reduce the, the negative effects and i'm putting that in inverted commas here um such as jitteriness right some people like that some people use that as the effect like some people are like oh, I take this pre-workout because it makes me fucking have paranoia, you know? (laughs) Like, some people like the side effects, so they're not side effects, they're just effects, right? Um, But something like L-theanine, which is just a compound that's often found in nature along with caffeine, such as in tea, right? Um, L-theanine in a dose of 100 to 200 milligrams can really take the edge off and can be somewhat anxiolytic in terms of it reduces anxiety from stuff like caffeine, Right and um, so that is something to consider if you're going to be stimulating yourself with a uh, caffeine maybe take some L-theanine with it that can give a smoother ride as can having different forms of caffeine this is something that you'll often see in pre-workouts as well they'll have different forms of caffeine usually the different forms the only real difference is the uh release nature of those forms like some of them are bonded to things that potentially have to be broken down before the caffeine can be used in the body so even though they might have you know 200 milligrams of caffeine there's a much smoother ride of that caffeine in terms of your blood concentration doesn't go up quite as fast and so you might be getting like oh there's a more immediate release 50 milligrams of it and then there's 150 of an extended release so you get a kind of smoother ride or maybe it's 100 100 it depends that's what people do in the supplement industry they make these kind of blends that they think will work for their target audience you know maybe their target audience wants to feel stimmed out of it so they're like right well we're going to give you the 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 blend here that makes you more stimmed out of it right but you'll often also see this people being like oh with our one there's no crash you know and the way they've done that is just have this really extended release once here you're just constantly getting a dip or getting a a little bit of caffeine dripped out into the system over the next four to five hours six hours you know so it's like oh yeah you didn't get a crash because you're actually still taking the supplement you know um which is just interesting but anyway gary do you have anything to say on any of that
0: yeah i don't think i have too much to add there i think that just reinforcing that point that when you take caffeine, the doses that are used in research are often far higher than people are used to. And it seems like some supplement companies have ran away with that in recent years. And some, the trend seems to be, um, especially a lot of with a lot of the trendier pre-workout supplements now that they're very high in caffeine, like up to, I've seen some that are just 400 milligrams per scoop, which which is extremely high for someone that could be very caffeine sensitive. Like that will drive you insane if you're not used to having caffeine. Um, So just be aware of that. You know, know what you're taking. Start on the lower end of the recommendation. You know, I'd probably start somewhere around two milligrams per kilo as a dose or no more than that anyway, maybe one to two, uh, before a workout and then work your way up and and see what, what does what for you. Uh, you often see doses of four to six milligrams per kilo and up in research. But again, that's really high if you're not used to having caffeine. And I would use that in the context where, you have to perform like it's a once off. I wouldn't be doing that before every workout, uh, especially if you're training in the evening. So just bear that in mind, know what you're taking and go from there. Some people might need to take L-theanine. A lot of people, most people don't, but some people find that if they take it, it softens it a little bit, especially if you get anxious, or you get jittery after caffeine, which a lot of people do. That might be something worth trying to enable you to still get the benefits of caffeine because Again, it's not just about how you feel; it's about the effects on the body overall. Um, and if L-theanine can make that more tolerable, that might be a benefit. So, not much else to say on that. Of course, there are other stimulant compounds. You know, there's there's many different iterations of different types of caffeine-like compounds that different supplements introduce, and they'll call them particular things and try to trademark them. But caffeine, it's the it's the basic, tried and tested, and it works. So you don't need to try. The other weird and wonderful things
1: 100%. moving on to we'll call it the pump vector here gary this is this is one this is a favorite one so what can we use to increase our pump
0: yeah so these are these are kind of i guess what you'd call osmotic compounds in, in that the goal effectively here is to try to draw more water into the muscle cell uh, to increase cellular hydration and the intracellular stressors so the idea here would be that number one you might get a better pump during your workout. But two, that the stimulus of having greater cell volume might in fact be hypertrophic in and of itself. There is some evidence to support that idea. Trying to tease out the exact mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy is always something that's really difficult because, you know, you, you can't exactly see what's going on in the muscle cell when you're working it and how that relates to adaptation. But it does seem like there might be some effect of, Cellular hydration. So effectively the idea there would be you drag more water into the cell, that muscle um, is now getting greater stresses from within, it's going to appear better from without in that you'll have a, a better pump. Um, and then also that there might actually be mechanical changes associated with that. So if you've got a muscle that has greater volume to it within a given workout because of cellular hydration and also because of muscle glycogen content, i.e. the carbohydrate store within your muscle that by changing the shape of the muscle that could also modify uh, your force output in some way so there's a few different things that could be going on there there's
1: also which is a lot of time people talk about like increased blood flow like there's two yes, points that, the first point. of all like increasing blood flow is increasing oxygenation of the muscle it's allowing you to actually do all the stuff that a muscle needs to do so there's that but then people will also argue that increasing blood flow increases nutrient delivery to the muscles so further to gary's point of like hydrating the muscle cells like because you're getting more stuff to the to the cell you're getting them more nutrients that they may need amino acids different vitamins minerals glucose like you were talking about glycogen you know so it's like these kind of pump things a lot of it is driven through hydration but also a lot of it is driven through blood flow and as a result all the kind of offshoots of that then as well
0: yeah absolutely and and some of the mechanisms vary based on the supplement as well so for example the first one we're talking about here is um citrulline malate and the idea here with this supplement is is kind of more so to do with the the blood flow aspect the vasodilatory effect so what happens here is um the citrulline is involved in the urea cycle and one of the things that occurs is nitric oxide synthesis, and that nitric oxide synthesis acts on the walls of your blood vessels to dilate them. And then the idea would be that you get better blood flow to the muscle, which is enabling obviously the water components of blood, but also the nutrients, the oxygen, etc. As you said, and there's also the there's supply to the muscle, and then there's getting that away from the muscle that that might be enhanced as well. So there is some evidence to support citrulline malate in terms of you know its efficacy. It's it's kind of one of those ones that, again, is uh, it's, it should be in a good pre-workout supplement. I think I think there's there's so little evidence for so many ingredients that if there's a, even a bit of evidence for any one of them, I'm like, yeah, get that in there. Uh, so citrulline malate seems like it might be of use. The problem is and I, I don't say this as a problem in terms of it's, it's not a problem to get this scoop. But the problem is a lot of pre-workout supplements, they'll have five gram scoops or 10 gram scoops, and for an effective dose of citrulline malate, you need six to eight grams or more. So if you've got that from one ingredient, how are you ever getting an effective dose with a five gram scoop? So this is a big problem with pre-workout supplements, that if you go through all the ingredients we talk about today, and you were to take everything that was effective, you'd need a 15 to 20 gram scoop. And most, most of these supplements that you're buying, they'll say, oh yeah, we have citrulline malate, and we have beta alanine, but they clearly aren't dosed appropriately given the size of the scoop. So if this is a supplement you're buying that's like pre-mixed, just check out the dose that's there because you'd probably want to see somewhere between six and eight grams. And one thing you can do very cheaply as well, just buy a big bag of citrulline malate and just add it in, you know, to your to your uh, supplement. Uh, L-citrulline as well as the other version of that, I can't remember which one you need a higher dose of. I think it might be citrulline malate. But re- regardless, you can check that out. Um, the 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 mechanism is the same uh, with with both forms. So, that's and also You citrulline-
1: can really get into the weeds of fucking citrulline malate in terms of it's actually not bonded. It's actually just citrulline and malic acid. Malic there, acid. There's no there's no bonding there, at least from my knowledge of understanding of the the chemistry of it. Um, but malic acid itself might have positive effects in terms of a variety of things variety of mechanisms why it might actually improve your work case as well but anyway citronium malate that's the one that is cheap effective a lot of research is done with it so that's one that i often recommend so six to eight milligrams of that or six to eight grams of that sorry you're good to go
0: and then the other um, one that kind of falls into this category is glycerol and you'll see glycerol in some supplements it's almost always like trademarked as something else like hydromax or these types of things pump max formula um and it's it's just glycerol okay? okay and and this is more of an osmotic effect i'm not sure if glycerol acts on the blood vessels themselves but i'm pretty sure it's more of an osmotic effect in terms of bringing water into the cell um and the idea here again would be that it increases the the pump the interest cellular hydration etc um and glycerol is kind of a it's kind of a weird one in that like it's not you know uh it's not an amino acid or anything it's kind of like a mix between a a fatty acid and a carbohydrate you could say it does have nutrient um content in that if you were having loads of glycerol you'd want to actually track it um because it's it's nutrition fundamentally um and the the dosing here varies quite a bit uh like you could take quite high doses here but you I think it's uh does tend to lead to some diarrheal effects if you take high doses of it uh, but up to maybe 10 grams or so two to 10 grams you'll often see four grams five grams in a lot of supplements that you take you can buy it as well as just like vegetable glycerin can't you um which is this the same without the fancy <laughs> trademark that you're often paying for yeah but there is slight differences in terms of that in terms of well th-
1: the vegetable glycerin mm. is In liquid we'll say format whereas all these ones the actual proprietary like technology is to get it into like a powder that is soluble and can be you know mixed with different things whereas like vegetable glycerin actually just tastes like sugar like (laughs) yeah so there's not a huge difference but i would probably for most people not encouraged them having this big fucking huge tub of like vegetable glycerin that they're just having to pour into their pre-workout and it's this like dense mixture like it's just it's just not practical for most people you know especially if you're trying to divvy out like a five gram dose of that you have this big fucking tub and you're like trying to get five grams out like it's just it's just not possible for most people, or practical, I should say, you know. Um, but glycerol does seem to be quite effective at, we'll call it hyper hydration, um, getting water fluids into the muscles, into the cells. And you have to remember, like, glycerol is a back- backbone of, like, triglycerides, for example, you know. So, like, it is a compound that the body has within itself, and it will be used. Usually, it's used in, well, triglyceride storage, like, fatty acids get attached to it and stored as triglycerides but also it can be burnt effectively metabolized as a carbohydrate. So like Gary said, like it does have an energetic value. So I wouldn't just be recklessly taking hundreds of grams of this stuff. <laughs> um, but it does seem to, even in relatively low doses, have a hydrating effect, um, which is obviously beneficial for, again, hydration of the muscles, of the working muscles. Um, so I, it, it can be effective. Is it something that I'd be like, you need to take this, for your workout yeah, probably not like it's a nice addition but i would probably err more on the side of citrulline malate than some sort of glycerol you know
0: yep reasonable and then the next one is energy and both of these energy uh things that we're going to talk about also enhance the kind of pump vector side of things to some extent. So we should just mention that. But from an energy perspective, what are we looking to do? We're looking to provide substrates that would be involved in the energy pathways that you'd be using during exercise. So number one would of course be carbohydrates. We don't need to say too much on that. Um, Just to say that carbohydrates can be used either before or during your workout. And obviously the overall priority is having carbohydrates uh, throughout the day. They do enhance performance. We see that Across pretty much every type of performance. So it would be very wise to have carbohydrates if you're trying to uh, improve your workouts. Before a workout, something fast acting, um, somewhere between maybe half a half a gram to a gram per kilo of your body weight is reasonable within one to two hours of training. I think that's gonna give you most of the benefits the carbs would give you before a workout. More prolonged endurance activities might require. Uh, Carbohydrates within the session, but I typically wouldn't worry about that unless I'm getting beyond 90 minutes, maybe two hours, and then beyond really anything under an hour. Yeah, you're not really going to benefit from intra work or carbohydrates all that much. And then the other component is creatine. So, carbohydrates are obviously supplying both carbohydrate oxidation and uh, glycolysis in terms of the energy pathways. And then creatine is going to support the creatine phosphate system. So, creatine is involved in ATP synthesis, giving your cells energy um, within the muscle. And having more creatine readily available for that ATP synthesis can help with things like strength, power, speed, et cetera. So, it's a very fast, short term, readily available energy source. It's not going to be your prime mover for longer activities, but for short, sharp activities, creatine is very helpful. So the dose there is somewhere between five and ten grams per day every day. Um, there have been some studies suggesting aiming for a target of 0.1 gram per kilo of body weight. We often say, ah, just aim for five grams for most people, and it's probably gonna, you know, get you there because creatine is not something that you know you have to take every day, that it's a it's an immediate effect. It's a cumulative effect in that you we're trying to replete the energy stores over time. So it's similar to carbohydrates in the sense that we say the overall day is important with carbohydrates and with creatine. Again, it comes down to long-term accumulation within the muscle and having that substrate available for when you need it.
1: 100%. I don't really have much to add to that, except that creatine is incredibly well-researched. Yes. Excuse me. It's one of those supplements that I'm like, you're not taking creatine. You're kind of leaving yourself shortchanged. You know, like if you're taking any other supplement and not creatine, and you're looking for workout performance, probably take creatine. Now, does that mean that you need to take it, like you said, pre-workout? Probably not. You know, there are, is research to suggest that post-workout is the, the optimal time to take it because then it, like, is absorbed into the muscles more readily, etc. Like, realistically, I just try to reduce the uh, burden of supplementation. And if you're already taking a few different things uh, before your workout, Add the creatine in there, like you're putting in like a pre-workout powder or whatever. Like, bang in the creatine, happy days, you know. Drink it before your workout. Drink it during your workout. Drink it after your workout. It doesn't fucking matter. Just take it, <laughs> you know. Like you can take it throughout the day as well if you want. You know, add it to your drinks. Cool. <laughs> um, and then that brings us to the final one in the pre-workout series here, and that is buffering. Um, and this is buffering for acid-base balance because you know if you've ever been to the gym or done training and you've noticed you've got like this what's often called lactate uh, buildup or lactic acid buildup maybe we want to reduce that you know maybe we don't want to get the burn so maybe we can get an extra few reps or run an extra little bit and and first of all there's a lot of different things we won't get into it because we've talked about it a, a few times first of all it's not lactate or lactic acid that's building up that causes the burn. It's a buildup of hydrogen ions because of glycolysis. But that's, again, besides the point. Um, So there is acidosis occurring. So your muscles, your cells are becoming more acidic. Now, your blood can also become more acidic, especially if we get to a certain level and especially if we're in hypoxic or low oxygen concentrations. However, your blood pH is relatively well managed so that's a little bit less of a concern right um but there are compounds that we can take that could potentially reduce the acidosis and again the thinking would be okay if we reduce the acidosis we can get a few extra reps here or we can perform a little bit better we can get an extra you know if i'm sprinting i can get a slightly longer sprint or i can go slightly faster without the burn inhibiting me etc right so from the off we're already kind of thinking, well, that maybe applies a little bit more to strength expression or performance expression um, rather than the training side of things, right? Now, it does still apply to the training side of things in terms of if over time you're able to get out a few extra reps, like maybe you're able to adapt to that stimulus quicker, faster, whatever, you know, especially if you're looking for hypertrophy you know you're like okay well maybe in a few extra reps that's of benefit right and there's two compounds that are often used first one is beta alanine and that's used in a dose of 3.2 to 6.4 grams and again we don't need to go too deep in terms of the mechanism of action um, but that seems to be effective for buffering acidosis right however you actually need to take it every single day even on non-workout days for it to be actually effective like the other thing about it is you do get this thing called paresthesia, which is this like itchy sensation, usually in your face, your like areas of your skin that generally have a little bit more blood flow, but also thinner skin. Like you might get it in your like groin area, your your asshole and stuff like that. Um so people will get itchy all over if they take beta-alanine, and um, which is a bit of a side effect that a lot of people don't like. Um but You have to take it every single day to actually reap the rewards, reap the benefit of it. So that means that if you're taking beta alanine for workout improvements, you're going to have to take it on your days off. So you're going to have to deal with those itchy sensations on your days off, right? Now, there are potential benefits transiently. So if you take it, you know, oh, I just took it today acutely. There's some benefits to that. Um, But really, we're looking at the longer term accumulation of it in terms of what it does, sarcosine, etc. Um, So the other compound that we use or potentially is suggested is something like sodium bicarbonate. Now beta alanine seems to work really like, we'll call it in the cell. Sodium bicarbonate seems to work like out of the cell, or maybe I'm getting that mixed up, right? But anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, sodium bicarbonate, again, can buffer acidosis. It can make things more alkaline when they're getting more acidic, right? Now. Both of these are very frequently recommended, but I actually just don't don't recommend them. I just don't think they're very efficacious. I just don't think they they offer all that much benefit. And in my perspective, I actually think there's potentially benefit from the acidosis in terms of a cell signaling uh, perspective. Now, there's no not a huge amount of research on that, but I actually think you could be shortchanging yourself in terms of the benefits from exercise the things that elicit the adaptations to exercise in terms of especially like muscle building, strength ac- accumulation, et cetera, if we're hammering a load of acid buffers uh, in the, the pre-workout or intra-workout period. Um, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Gary.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is with these, with both of these supplements, there's a huge tolerability issue. So people don't like taking beta alanine because of the paresthesia, And people don't like taking sodium bicarbonate because in high doses, it can cause GI upset. Um, And that's often the case with doses that are actually kind of used in research to demonstrate the effect. So people don't like that. There's also the other elephant in the room with sodium bicarbonate that it's not just bicarbonate. It's a fairly high dose of sodium. So if you take 10 grams of sodium bicarbonate, you're getting like, I think, two or three grams of sodium um, from that. And that's the equivalent of five or six grams of salt, which is basically you at the guideline that we recommend for the upper limit of salt intake for most people already. So it's it's just one of those things that I'm not sure the the juice is worth the squeeze, if you will. I, there, there's also some evidence that taking buffering uh, compounds that reduce muscle acidosis reduce has the potential to produce adaptations to exercise as well. Because when we train we naturally improve our muscle our muscle cells buffering capacity. So your muscle develops its own endogenous system to be able to deal with an increase in hydrogen ions or a reduction in pH. So the problem there is that if you're consistently supplementing with these things, that you won't actually even have the same adaptations. So then if you're without those supplements, your performance could potentially see a decrement. Now, the evidence isn't, necessarily that well established that we can make that claim very strongly or say that you know you stop taking your beta alanine you're going to have a 10% reduction in performance but I think you know there's there's enough there to suggest that ah you know without very significant benefit I probably wouldn't be running away with this as a a very useful um, avenue for supplementation there was a lot more enthusiasm about beta alanine I think in you know probably 10 years ago than there is now Uh, it seems like a lot of the outcomes in terms of like muscle building and stuff didn't really manifest all that much. So I think I'd be more enthusiastic about these supplements in cases where you're doing like super hard anaerobic training, like repeated sprints and that type of thing, Um, acid bath type of training. Um, And even at that, I'm kind of thinking, do I want to compromise my ability to adapt to that training? Um, Maybe it's a case that you use it during a, a period where you're expected to perform. But overall, I would say, I'm not all that enthusiastic because of one, you know, the evidence not being all that encouraging the tolerability as well. And then the potential for a reduction in endogenous adaptations. I think overall I'm, I'm a lot less enthusiastic about these supplements than I might've been before.
1: However, you will consistently see at least beta alanine put in pre workouts. Because Pretty much
0: every pre-workout.
1: Because feel it it. gives you that paresthesia it gives you that tingly sensation it gives you oh i can feel the pre-workout working it's it's kicking in right so it's this kind of placebo effect right so you're like oh i feel this pre-workout it it really hits you know that's because your skin feels like it's fucking crawling off you you know um but is it actually effective i wouldn't think so obviously again in some sporting context like maybe if you're like a rower for example in rowing i could be like Yeah, like that makes sense. You know, you're in this fucking weird anaerobic, aerobic kind of range where, you know, if you can get an extra little bit of buffering capacity in there, happy days, you know? But like you said, maybe it's actually compromising your adaptations to that. But maybe that's okay if you're just trying to perform. You know, you're just like, this is the session that I need to perform at. Makes sense. Right. Now, that's the pre workout stuff. Luckily, so you don't have to listen to us for too much longer. Intra-workout and post-workout are a lot simpler. Even though people will try to make it a lot more complicated, it's actually quite simple. Because what are we trying to do intra-workout? Well, we're trying to ensure that our energy levels stay stable. That's pretty much the, the gist of it, right? Now, we do have a secondary goal of potentially starting the recovery process or helping the recovery process. But outside of that, It's keeping your energy level stable, keeping hydration stable, but that's more of just like drinking enough water. And now you could argue that some of the pre-workout things could fit into the intra-workout period. Like if you take creatine, like it could fit in intra-workout. And a lot of that is true, but we've covered all those compounds. So we don't need to go through them again, right? Um, And again, you have to remember that digestion, et cetera, takes some time. So it's not like, oh, well, I took this thing during my workout. So that means that it's in play during my workout oftentimes it's it's not actually in play until 60 minutes later at least you know if you take a lot of caffeine intra-workout some of it's trickling into the system during the workout but the most most of it's probably after the workout <laughs> that's when you're getting the hit of it so again we have to take uh, digestion into effect so intra-workout really if we're looking to keep energy levels good performance good throughout the session we're really only looking at intra workout carbohydrates. Like you could argue that maybe you want to look at intra workout BCAAs, but I think that isn't really all that effective. BCAAs can be used as an energy substrate, but I don't know why you would want to quote unquote teach your body to use amino acids for energy. It just doesn't seem effective if your goal is muscle building rather than muscle breakdown. Now, that's not a a huge issue. But there are some other issues with the BCAAs that just would lead you to say, well, it's not really all that beneficial versus other things. Now, what we could suggest is some EAAs, so the essential amino acids, maybe that makes sense. Again, whole protein, maybe that also makes sense. You know, So if we're in this stage of our training where we're like, look, I want to make sure that I'm building muscle and I'm fueling these workouts, you could maybe take some carbohydrates and some whey protein powder during your workout so that you know that you're getting nutrients to the muscles during and immediately after your workout when you need it so you're effectively ensuring that energy levels are topped up through the workout and then you're also making sure that the nutrients are delivered to the muscles etc immediately after the workout because you, you took them during the workout they've been dripping out you know now the only issue with that is Especially if you've used lots of caffeine or other stimulants, you know, we're kind of working two different sides of the uh, the nervous system here in terms of we've got the SNS and the PSNS, often abbreviated to the PNS, even though that's a peripheral nervous system, um, rather than parasympathetic nervous system. And I we've talked about it before, but I hate the sympathetic, parasympathetic, because... They should be the other way around because it's really confusing. Um, But anyway, this SNS, that's really like fight or flight. Let's go. Let's fucking get hyped. That's what caffeine is doing, right? When you eat food, you ideally want to be in this PSNS, you know, this like rest and digest. Okay, recover, relax, right? So you're kind of giving the body mixed signals here by uh, stimming yourself out of your mind and then taking in nutrients that require you to be in the PSNS to really get the benefit from, right? So you're either shifting yourself away, shifting yourself out of that SNS, let's fucking go, or you're staying in that SNS, let's fucking go, and you're not actually able to really rest, digest the nutrients. So either way, we do have to take that into account. So the higher stimulated you get, probably the less I would focus on intra-workout nutrition, even though, you know, That might be different to what some other people would suggest you know um but anyway that's a little bit of an aside intra-workout Gary carbs and maybe whole protein maybe EAAs like the only reason I would say EAAs is purely because they come in lots of different flavors that's a good thing (laughs) you know whereas like you're like I want a nice fucking drink during my workout that makes me excited to train etc like you can get like Cola flavored EAAs. You can get sour apple flavored, like you can get unicorn piss. Like there's so many different uh flavors out there of EAAs that it can just make training a little bit more enjoyable, make hydrating during training a little bit more enjoyable, and as a result, improve performance. And whereas like whole protein, like, yeah, there's different flavors of whey protein out there, but like it still kind of tastes like dairy, you know. Maybe you don't want to drink that during your workout. But anyway, what's your thoughts on intra workouts, Gary?
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I ever use really is carbohydrates. Um, I am a big fan of, you know, carbohydrates within the workout for longer sessions in particular, or if I've been fasting for a prolonged period. Okay. So intra workout nutrition always starts with pre-workout nutrition. So if I've had a good meal, you know, in the hour or two before, I don't need to have carbohydrates during my workout. But a lot of the time when I'm training jujitsu, I don't like eating, uh, soon before, uh, anyone that's trained jujitsu can probably figure out why, <laughs> um, but, uh, it's, it's just not, it's not the guy I like to do. So what I try and do is I'll generally have a meal three to four hours before if I, if I am eating before jiu jitsu. um, if it's a morning session, I often won't eat. And if it's at, you know, six o'clock in the evening, I'll have my last meal at lunch, which is one or two. So I won't be eating again before then. So as a result, it's going to be a while since I've had any source of carbohydrates. So I might have something like a Luxate Sport or um, one of the high five uh, carbohydrate powders that I have or dextrose, anything like that. Um, I'll have that during the session. So that really is where I end up using them. If I'm also doing something like a long run or a long cardio session, I'll use them for an average gym session, heading to the gym, lifting weights, 45 minutes, an hour, Not really a big deal. It will give you a bit of an edge if you haven't eaten before and if you're doing a very high volume session. But for a lot of the sessions that people do in the gym, when you see the intensity they're training at, you see the overall volume they're doing, and you consider that they've eaten two hours before, probably not too much of a big deal.
1: 100%. Which brings us to the post-workout. The exact same thing here. Same, <laughs> message. yeah, exactly. The exact same thing. Like we want some energy, not to provide this. Even you know, dose of energy through the workout. It's to provide the energy to start recovering from that workout, to start you know building the muscle, whatever the adaptations are. Right. So yeah, we probably want to restock glycogen stores. And again, this is like Gary was saying. These things change. The importance of these things change depending on the workout what You did before what you did during, et cetera, you know. So, like if you haven't eaten at all in the pre-workout or intra-workout period, post-workout nutrition and post-workout supplementation probably becomes more important, right? But if you've had a pre-workout meal, you've had intra-workout carbohydrates and protein or EAAs, like you've kind of already started the post-workout nutrition, refueling, etc. You know, like you can push out a meal two hours after your workout, then. Whereas I would be less inclined to push out a meal or post-workout, you know, supplementation, whatever, nutrition. Um, if I was like, all right, I just had a fasted workout. Like I, I often, well, 99% of the time, I just train fasted in the morning, the gym, or I do my cardio. um, And then I just have a meal after that, you know, for me, that works, you know. But that meal is important to have after that because, well, first of all, I usually have jujitsu later in the day, so I want to make sure that I've restocked glycogen, etc. You know, if I was to push that meal out and go, oh, I'll just eat middle of the day, you know, that means I've probably gone sixteen hours without food. I'm training first thing in the morning. I had food uh, the night before. I haven't eaten now until the middle of the day. The vast majority of a day without nutrition, with a workout in there like I'm probably not optimizing muscle building, recovery, et cetera. Right. That's okay. For some people that might be just like, cool. They're just working out to stay healthy. They're not really looking to optimize everything. But obviously if you're looking to optimize everything, you would have more focus on post-workout nutrition in that case. Right. And um, but in terms of supplementation, usually I'm just airing for food. You know, I'm like, that's food is the, is the goal post-workout. Right. Um, I wouldn't be like, oh, you need to have a protein shake. Like they can be handy. Like Gary, you, you have a very busy schedule where you have to be in different places. Like I have to be in my house, you know, like I don't have to go a different places. The Food is right there in the fridge, <laughs> you know, whereas if you're in different places, I'd be like, all right, Gary, for you might maybe it makes sense to have like a, a protein shake after your workout. and like, that's just easy nutrition for you. Shake it up. Boom. You don't have to think too much about it, you know? Um, whereas that might not be the case for other people. Now, there is something, unless you have anything to say on that, Gary. No, not
0: really, I just agreed.
1: Uh, some people will suggest, oh, well, maybe we'll, you know, start dosing with some like antioxidants uh during the workout and post-workout. You know, there's some oxidation that occurs during workout, during training. So we want to hammer the body with some antioxidants to help improve inflammation and different things. That doesn't seem to be all that beneficial. In fact, it actually seems to be counterintuitive, counterproductive in terms of it actually seems to blunt some of the adaptations to exercise. Now, to what degree? Again, it depends on the dose, It depends on the exact antioxidant that you're using, et cetera, et cetera. And it appears to be less of a problem if it's food-based because there's a whole food matrix, it takes time to digest, et cetera, you know. But I just wouldn't be hammering any kind of anti-inflammatory compounds, high-dose antioxidant supplements, stuff like that in the post-workout, intra-workout, or even the pre-workout period. It seems to be counterproductive for the adaptations that we want, both cardiovascular adaptations, strength adaptations, strength adaptations to a lesser degree, but muscular adaptations as well, you know? So antioxidants anti-inflammatories etc in my mind they're not really something i would be prioritizing in this kind of peri workout uh period yep i would be forced to
0: agree forced (laughs) (laughs) yes i would be inclined to agree now with that said one more thing on that is that sometimes people get carried away with this they think oh antioxidants are bad so no fruit no no blueberries seems to be different when
1: it's in a food matrix you know (laughs) you can have your food yeah you can have your fruit you can veg Gary let's say again you're a busy person you're having like your protein shake after your workout in the morning you're like oh like I want to get some carbohydrates oh the only source that they have here is one of those like fruit smoothie drinks no I'm not going to get that it has antioxidants in it yeah I probably wouldn't matter. Like, I probably just wouldn't care. I would just get it. There you go. There's some carbohydrates. There's some extra nutrients. It's probably still going to have some effect. You know, it's probably a little bit too refined. Those antioxidants might get into your system a little bit too quickly. Would we be better off having something like food, like all those vegetables, fruits, whatever the fuck they're putting into that in terms of food? Yeah, probably. You know, that's probably going to be even better. Right. But Effectively all we're saying is don't just be like oh here's a 10 grams of vitamin C that I'm adding to uh my post workout to quench inflammation or here's a load of curcumin that I'm just going to fucking hammer into post workout to quench inflammation or here's any other antioxidant oh, here's a load of vitamin E that I'm just going to take post workout like those kind of things I just wouldn't be prioritizing it but I wouldn't be worrying about it if it's in food or even in a more refined source like a smoothie or something <laughs>
0: yeah at best it does nothing and at worst you're taking a like super reckless high dose and it might compromise your adaptations again it's it's more of a a recommendation to not be going for it rather than a immediate avoidance or anything else
1: not a priority during this time period. that's definitely not anyway gary that's the peri workout supplementation now again we can go down rabbit hole of any fucking number of nutrients because you can just pull up pre-workout uh supplements you know and you'll get a billion fucking hits because they're a very lucrative market people make lots of money in this area and to do that they have to distinguish themselves from other competitors you know and it makes sense like if you have all oh, my thing has 20 different scientifically studied validated ingredients on your list someone reads and goes 20 ingredients fuck that's good maybe this other one is like three ingredients Nah, fuck the three ingredients even though the three ingredient one might actually be in effective doses, whereas the 20 ingredient one is just, you know, so low do- so lowly dose that it's just does fucking nothing at best, you know? Um, so we're not going to dive into all of the fucking millions of different supplements that we could, or compounds, I should say, that we could potentially talk about. Um, but that's my perspective. Anyway, Gary, do you mind to add to that? And if not, do you want to wrap it up?
0: No, that's everything from us for this week. So obviously we're talking a lot about nutrition now, supplements, etc. So if you'd like to take your knowledge to the next level, we recommend getting on our nutrition certification. So whether you want to be a nutritionist, you want to up your game as a coach and you know get better at your nutrition coaching, or you're just interested in taking your knowledge up a notch, you can get involved with our nutrition cert at the description box below, at the link in the description box below. And if you're interested in coaching, you want personalized guidance as to how you can maximize your health, fitness, performance, et cetera, you can also apply for a space to work with myself or Patty or another member of the triage coaching team below. We also have a newsletter that goes out goes out each week, currently going out twice per week. So you're missing out on a lot of content if you're not subscribed to the newsletter. So make sure that you do that and also make sure that you're following us on social media a Triage Method and also our individual pages, which you'll find once you head to the triage page. And then finally. If you're enjoying the podcast, we always appreciate when people share it, leave a rating and review if you can, you know, tell friends about it, all that sort of thing. So that's everything from us.
1: Fantastic. We'll see you next week, guys.